Let's come before the Lord in prayer as we come to his word. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to hear from your word tonight. Pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we look into the book of Ecclesiastes. We pray, Lord, that you would give us great wisdom, that you would give us great joy. Lord, we pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Well, last time in Ecclesiastes, when I was here last month, we saw how we ought to think about our circumstances in the world and the circumstances of others in life. We saw that without God, even prosperity is adversity, and that with God, even adversity is prosperity. And Solomon went back to his familiar refrain in that section, as he's done throughout Ecclesiastes, saying that we are to be joyful under the sun because of this, because God is sovereign. God is sovereign over prosperity, times of prosperity. God is sovereign over times of adversity. What he has made crooked, who can make straight, as verse 13 of chapter 7 says. Now Solomon turns to another observation of this crookedness that we experience in life. And that's what we'll be considering tonight. And he introduces it in verse 15 of chapter 7, which says... In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in uh, in evil doing. And then by the end, by the middle chapter of chapter 8, he says a very similar thing. Look at chapter 8, verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So Solomon observes this truth, that wicked people are often able to prolong their lives by doing wicked things, and that righteous people often die because of their righteousness. Simple examples of this we can think about in the sin-cursed world. Think of a coward running away from a burning building where there are people he could be saving. He's being wicked, but he prolongs his life. The righteous man runs in and lays his life down for those suffering inside. Or think about something a bit more sinister. Consider someone with great power who is a wicked man. He has power over others, Those who would righteously oppose him, he can put to death in order to maintain his position of power. Once again, wickedness has prolonged life and the righteous have died because of their righteousness. So why is that? Why does wickedness work to prolong life and why does righteousness so often demand the sacrifice of life? Solomon doesn't give us an answer to that, I'm afraid. Not one that we would like anyway. But that is what he deals with in this section of Ecclesiastes. He helps us to ask the right kind of questions, to focus on the right things. So, good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. The world is crooked. It is not ideal. 
Think about the book of Proverbs. Throughout the book of Proverbs, we see presentations of the wisdom ideal, what we can call the wisdom ideal, right? If you do X, Y's thing, then good Y thing will happen. That's all through the book of Proverbs. If you do this thing that is wise and good, then this thing is going to follow. But we know from our own experience that that does not actually happen, that the Proverbs are not guarantees, they're not promises about what would happen. What the book of Proverbs is presenting to us is the wisdom ideal. In a perfect world, if you did this good thing, this wise thing, there would always be good results. In a perfect world, if you followed the right model, the right mode of living, then you would have success. Your life would go well. But we do not live in a perfect world. We live in a crooked world, a world where certainly the wisdom ideal does happen sometimes, but its opposite happens just as much. And so how are we to deal with this? How are we to think about this? What should our response be? Solomon shows us this. First, he's going to show us three things that we need to do, to under, that, that we need to do or to understand when it comes to the world's crookedness. That's how to be in the world and how not to be in the world. And then he gives an example of that wisdom, of the wisdom that we need to have in the world in the beginning of chapter 8. Because the world is crooked, before he concludes with how this crookedness is vanity and how we should then live because of that. So he starts off with the first thing that we need to do because of this, and that is that we need to avoid tending to extremes. We need to go between the extremes. Look at verse 16. Solomon writes, Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Just read that again. What? Don't be too righteous, guys. Did you ever think that you'd hear someone tell you, okay, guys, don't be too good now. No one likes a goody two-shoes, hey? Also, don't be too wicked. You can be a little bit wicked, but just don't overdo it. Is that what Solomon is telling us? Is that what God's word says here? What is this doing in the Bible? So obviously, he's making a point with some exaggeration here. All right? he, he, what he's talking about, this being overly righteous, he's, he's talking about relying on your righteousness to deal with this crooked world. It's a, a kind of self-righteousness, that's the problem, right? It's, and, and this self-righteousness is suicidal. Why should you destroy yourself, he says at the end of verse 16. If you rely on yourself, if you rely on your own righteousness, you are killing yourself. Being obsessed with being righteous is a great danger. It's the wrong thing to be focused on, all right? Even trying to be overly wise is a problem, trying to be too clever. Remember earlier on in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that with more knowledge and more wisdom comes more sorrow. It's actually more destructive to know too much. The more you know, the more you know you don't know, and the more depressed you become because you don't know it. 
All right, so, so that's what Solomon is speaking about here when it comes to the righteousness. And later on, we'll see in this passage, Solomon speaks about how he has tried to find the scheme of things, to find out how things work, and how that was a vain task. So don't be overly righteous. That is, don't rely on your righteousness to get you through this life. And don't be overly wise. Don't try to gain too much knowledge. Those things will destroy you. For the wicked part, as for the wickedness side of things, Solomon's not saying that a little sin is okay. But what happens so often is that we sin and we're like, oh well, I messed up, I might as well just carry on. I lusted after her in my heart, I might as well sleep with her. I already sinned, well, I might as well carry on sinning, just finish the job, whatever it may be. That's the wrong kind of attitude to have. We're all going to sin, so we're all going to be wicked in some way. But don't be overly wicked in that you let that run away with you. And also, don't be a fool. Don't be content with no knowledge and no wisdom at all. Don't sit and think to yourself that ignorance is bliss. So these are the two extremes. You're either on the extreme side of looking for righteousness and relying on your own righteousness and trying to get more righteousness. Or you're on the other side saying, I sin, I sin anyway, let me carry on sinning so that grace may abound. Or, because there's no point in being righteous anyway, because bad things are going to happen to me anyway, because that's how the world works. In a crooked world, we tend to either of these extremes. We think maybe that we're not righteous enough, or we rely, overly rely on our own goodness and wisdom to achieve the wisdom ideal, or we see the pointlessness of even trying to be righteous. So we give ourselves over to wickedness because, hey, things get better for the wicked anyway in this world. So to avoid these extremes, Solomon gives us verse 18. He says that the solution is to fear God. He says it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So fear God, and you shall come out from being both overly righteous and from being overly wicked. Fear of the Lord, as we know from Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. This wisdom is what guides us through the two extremes. So our focus need not be on our own righteousness, and need not be on pleasure and wickedness and ignorance. Our focus is to be on God and on his ways, rather than our ways or how things seem to be going under the sun. That is wisdom. Wisdom is not focusing on how horrible things are in the world or focusing on what we need to do ourselves to make it better and to bring about the wisdom ideal in our own lives. It is about fearing the Lord. And this wisdom will give us strength. Look at verse 19. Wisdom... This comes from the fear of the Lord. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. A city large enough to need ten rulers is probably quite strong. But their strength is not worth comparing with the strength that true wisdom comes 
with, with the strength that comes from true wisdom. Such a city is likely to head for one or other of the extremes without God's wisdom. So we need this wisdom, we need this strength to hold both things in tension to be able to avoid these extremes. So, the first thing then that we need to do, living in a world that is crooked, where good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people, is not try to depend on our righteousness to make good things happen, and not just go for wickedness because good things seem to happen over there. That's the first thing. Second, the second thing that we need to do in such a crooked world is realize that actually no one is righteous. We need to realize that no one is righteous. Look at verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So no one is actually righteous. So why do we expect things to go anyone's way based on their righteousness? No one is righteous. See, the wisdom ideal cannot happen in a world where no one is holding up their end of the Proverbs bargain. No one is doing Y's X, so why would good Y happen? No one is righteous 100% of the time, and as long as that is true, the wisdom ideal cannot be fully brought about. So next time you ask yourself why something bad has happened to someone good, realize that they deserve something far worse, eternal judgment. Now this isn't very satisfying because we know that some people are more righteous than others. Some people do seem to deserve more good things to happen than bad things to happen. So that's what I mean about how this answer isn't very satisfying. Because we still feel like, yeah, but there are levels of these things in the world. Some people are more righteous than others. Surely they deserve to have a better life than the people who are just plain old wicked. It is not the case. Unfortunately, levels of things do not matter. Or at least we do not understand how they factor into God's plan for the world. We must just accept that the wisdom ideal will not happen because no one is righteous. So Solomon goes on then in verses 21 and 22 to make sure that we apply this truth to ourselves directly. Look at verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So when you're experiencing bad things happening to yourself, like curses or finding out someone's been gossiping about you, things like that, realize this truth applies to you too. You are not righteous. No matter how obsessed with, you, with righteousness you are, no matter how overly righteous you are, you have cursed people too. You have gossiped about people too. You have been the bad thing happening to someone good. So when you feel like you're a good guy, something bad happens to you, you need to realize that you have been the bad thing happening to a good person before. You need to apply this truth that no one is righteous to yourself in a very real way. 
So don't be surprised then when things like this happen to you. You have caused them as well. We want to be careful here. here. This isn't a karma thing. It's not saying what goes around comes around. If you do something, if you curse somebody, you're going to get cursed. No, that's not how it works. The scales don't match. Karma wants an equal amount of bad things and good things to happen to the same person. That's not how things work here. As we've seen, wicked people prolong their lives and righteous people don't. That's not what's going on here. Rather, the point is that no one is righteous, so you cannot expect the wisdom ideal to happen. So that's the second thing that we need to do. We need to make sure we don't tend to these two extremes to try to bring the wisdom ideal about in our own strength. And then we must realize that no one is righteous, and so the wisdom ideal cannot happen in such a world. The third and final thing he says is that we are to understand that our sin makes it difficult to see God's sovereignty. To make us... that it, to understand that our sin makes it difficult to understand what God is doing in the world by making it crooked. Because remember, the crookedness in the world is not outside of God's control. We saw it last time in 7 verse 13. Consider the works of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? The fact that the world is not in a state of wisdom idealness is not something that is outside of God's control. He is sovereign over that. Look at verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Solomon seeks to be overly wise. He wants to figure out God's sovereignty. He wants to understand why things happened in the past, the things that have happened before. He wants to know why God has decided that the world should be so crooked. But he cannot find this out. Job, in the book of Job, struggles with the same thing. The same questions about his life. Why have all these terrible things happened to him? Why have all his possessions been stolen away? Why have his children been killed? Why has his wife turned against him and against God? He was living the wisdom ideal, and suddenly it all got taken away. And what did he do to deserve that? Had God forgotten him? Is God unjust? Those were some of the things that Job pondered with his friends. His friends, of course, thought that he had sinned, but the book of Job doesn't indicate that he had any particular sin that caused this to happen. In fact, the reason that all this happened to Job remained a mystery to Job, but we know what happened behind the scenes. God was proving a point to Satan. That was why what happened to Job happened. Job never knew this. And so, God's sovereignty and the reasons that he does things and makes crooked things happen like he did to Job are a mystery to us. 
And the reason that it's a mystery to us is because in applying our sinful hearts to find wisdom, as Solomon speaks about himself doing here, we find something else. What Solomon in particular found in his life, he tells us. He finds the adulterous woman, or in his case, thousands of them. Look at verse 26. And, what, and I find, right, he's seeking wisdom, he's seeking the scheme of things, how things work, why things are the way they are. In verse 26, and I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Since we are sinners, since Solomon is a sinner, we'll be constantly distracted by the things of the world. Even in our attempts to understand the crookedness of the world, we find ourselves contributing to it. Solomon surrounded himself with pagan women. He was incredibly wise, and yet as he sought to figure out God's sovereignty, he became trapped by adultery. Perhaps he brought these women into his harem to try to understand the world better. Look what he's trying to understand in verse 25. The wickedness of folly, the foolishness that is madness. Maybe he wants to interrogate them about their paganism, but he ends up getting trapped. In his attempts to understand these things, he falls prey to them. He's trapped himself in them. Even in his court, he can find only one man in a thousand who is wise and pleases God. And because of the women he surrounds himself with, he doesn't find one of them to be wise and to please God. Just make sure you understand that. This isn't a misogynistic thing where out of a thousand women you won't find any righteous or wise, but you might find one man. That's not what's going on. This is Solomon writing very personally about his experience. He says in verse 25, I turn my heart to know and to search. These are the things I was doing. And we know from his life, the kind of women that he surrounded himself with, he was not very likely to find one in a thousand of them to be wise. All right, so, so what we need to seek wisdom is a new heart, not our sinful heart. When we seek to find wisdom in our own capacity, we may come up with some fine ideas, but it always ends up with one of the extremes, being overly righteous or being overly wicked. How many philosophers have determined, for example, that the material world is evil? And so what do they do? They go and they live incredibly pious lives. There was the one Greek philosopher, Diogenes, who his only possession was a barrel that he slept in. This was enlightenment. How many philosophers have said, well, the material world is all there is. So let's eat, drink, have sex, and be merry. 
How many businessmen are really smart guys that can get a good business going, but then end up being sex and drug addicts at the same time? We're always going to be distracted by these extremes, overly righteous, overly wicked. And so, when we're trying to figure out why the world is the way it is, we need not ask why things are happening the way they are happening, as Job asked. We need to ask who. Who is in control? Who is sovereign? Who has made it crooked? Who must I fear? We will never understand God's sovereignty. We will rarely be told why things are crooked in the way that they are. But we can know who God is, that he is in control, and acknowledge his sovereignty, though we do not understand it. We need to fear God and trust in him. The next thing that Solomon does for us after showing us these three things, right? We're not to tend towards these extremes. We need to realize that no one is righteous and we need to not try to understand God's sovereignty. He now gives us an example of this wisdom in practice. Because we're saying this is wisdom. It's not doing this. It's not doing that. So he gives us a very practical example in the beginning of chapter 8. An example of wisdom and crookedness an example of navigating through the extremes. And he starts off by speaking about what a wise person looks like in verse 1. Who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. A wise person is a unique kind of person. Such a person's face is always shining rather than being hard, right? A wise man is joyful, tends to understand what is going on in the world around him. He has the right perspective about it, and so he can be joyful. His face is not hard. It's, it's not stubborn. It's not discontented with life and the vanity thereof. Rather, as we've seen throughout Ecclesiastes, because he knows what is happening under the sun is temporary, it's vanity, it's a vapor that is fleeting, He puts no ultimate meaning in any of it. And as we'll see in this example, that filters down into how he handles life. Look at verses 2 to 5, where Solomon gives us this example. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Solomon's example has to do with obeying the king. For us, perhaps, it has to do with obeying the governing authorities. Based on this, and based even on our scripture reading earlier on from 1 Peter, And another one would be Romans 13, where God speaks about giving authority to the governing authorities. Based on all of that, this example, it should be quite a surprise when Christians decide to disobey the governing authorities. It should be a surprise. We should be the last people expected to do that. So here, Solomon tells his audience, 
because of some oath that they are to obey the king. The translation of that is iffy. Um, it could be several things. Some say it's man's oath to God to obey him. Others say it's man's oath to the king. Others say it's God's oath to the king. It's unclear, but any way that you take it, certainly God has given the king authority. We know that from Romans 13 and 1 Peter 1. He did that then, he does that today. And also back then, he may be speaking about people swearing submission to him. If you look at 1 Chronicles 29, when Solomon becomes king, all of his brothers and, and the whole court, they all swear fealty and submission to him. So whatever this is, this oath is, today we are required to obey the governing authorities. So this um, example applies to us just as much as to Solomon's audience. Solomon's immediate audience and ourselves then are to obey our ruler's commands. We ought not to champion evil causes lest they use their power as they please to punish us. It is wise not to be overly wicked when it comes to the king. Yet, there is a time to question the king's supreme command. Look at what he says. For the word of the king is supreme, in verse 4. Who may say to him, what are you doing? Right? Who can question him? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. In other words, generally, if you obey your rulers, bad things won't happen to you. And the wise heart, though, will know the proper time and the just way. That is, to say to the king, what are you doing? So do you see what, what he's saying? We're not, we're not to be hasty to rush from the king's presence. We're not to be hasty to say, what are you doing? We're not to find every possible hill and die on it. What the wise person does, because they know that God is in control... Because they know that what this king does isn't going to last forever, they are able to be very choosy about what they choose uh, to defy and what they choose not to. Sure, there are plenty of laws in our own country today that are wicked and wrong, but that, that are oppressive. I mean, how much do we get taxed? A lot of you are students, maybe aren't getting taxed yet, but we get taxed enormous amounts of money. A very high percentage. When, when Samuel was speaking about how King Saul would be a tyrant over the people, he said that they would take 10, he would be so bad that he would take 10% of all that you make. Our government takes a lot more than that. Our government's tyrannical by Samuel, the prophet's standards anyway. All right? But is that a hill to die on? Now, there are other laws, perhaps when it comes to how we educate and discipline our children, that we may want to defy. We have to weigh these things up and determine when the right time is to do what. And yet, we see in verses 6 to 9, that even if we go about this defying and obeying perfectly wisely, we, may, we make all the right calculations and thoughts, it still might not work. Remember, we're still not in the wisdom ideal. Look at verse 6. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. We don't know what's going to happen. For who can tell him how it will be? 
No man has power to retain the spear or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So when wicked men have power over other men, it is to their hurt. And though a wise person seeks to question his ruler's commands in the best way possible, it may not work. We're not living in the wisdom ideal. So though our actions may be perfectly wise, the outcome may not be. We do not know whether we will be thrown into a war, whether we will be delivered from it. Indeed, even a wise man cannot control the day of his own death and when a wicked ruler will have power over him. The key to all of this is verse 6. A man's trouble lies heavy on him. The trouble that's being spoken about here is how we are not living in the wisdom ideal, how bad things happen to good people and how good things happen to bad people, how the wicked prolong their lives by doing wicked things and the righteous die because of their righteousness. And so, it does no use to get frustrated when things do go wrong. We should know that that was always a possibility to begin with. So, this is how we content ourselves while we live in a crooked world. We do not need to be pessimistic about life. And we'll see reasons for that shortly. But we always need to make sure that we're aware that all of our solid, wise, godly planning is no guarantee of success. And yet, what Solomon is saying here in this example is that we must still seek to be making these wise and godly plans. Just because we know it might not work doesn't mean we don't do it, is what Solomon is saying. And so when it doesn't work, it's no surprise and we can be content. And when it does work, praise the Lord. It seems very difficult to just hold ourselves to that, to just be like, okay, I'm just going to be okay if this doesn't go right, even though I did everything right. Well, we don't need to live that way without any hope. Because God is going to restore the crookedness. He's going to make things straight. Look at verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place, were praised in the city where they had done such things, such things having power over other men to their hurt. This also is vanity. It's fleeting. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of children, <clears throat> the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will not be well with the, that it will be well, sorry, with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. The wicked will die. Their wicked deeds will not prolong their lives forever. It is vanity. It doesn't last. Their lives are vapor. They are fleeting, just like everyone else. They may have been praised in the past, 
whether it's out of fear or genuine reverence, but none of it can prolong their lives or their legacy. In the end, they will be forgotten under the sun. And just because God does not carry out the sentence on them speedily, as speedily as we would like, does not mean that it will not be carried out in the end. But look, look at verse 11. This, this serves as judgment on them. God doesn't execute them speedily. And what happens? Their hearts are fully set on evil. There's no chance for them. The wicked, thinking that they are getting away with their evil deeds, give themselves over to their wickedness. Though they continue in their wickedness, prolonging their lives here under the sun, it will not be well with them once they die. For their death is only the beginning of their eternal death, a death which will never stop happening to them. Good things happen to wicked people in this world. The worst thing is going to happen to them when they die. God's wrath is going to be poured out on them. But those who fear God do not have this eternal death. And though we die in our righteousness here on earth, we do not die forever. We have eternal life to look forward to. It will go well with us after our lives under the sun are done. So the wisdom that God gives to those who fear him is wisdom unto salvation. It is those who are saved who are able to content themselves in this world in spite of its crookedness. You see, because God's wrath is not just poured out on the wicked who defy him in their wickedness to the end. Rather, it was poured out on Christ. Now here is how this worked. So Christ the most righteous person, experienced the worst possible thing that can happen to anyone. Talk about bad things happening to good people. This is the ultimate crookedness. That Christ died when he had no sin. And yet God decreed it. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? Even Jesus in the garden asked that this be taken away. But he submitted himself to the Father's will that this terrible thing happened to him. And yet, that terrible thing happened to him so that it might not happen to us. So that we could be wise to God's sovereignty and content with it. So that we could know that because of the most crooked thing happening under the sun, that the wisdom ideal would be restored for an eternity. When God is done advancing his kingdom on earth, on the final judgment day, the wisdom ideal will be restored. The wicked will be judged, the righteous will be glorified. But we need to remember that there are none who are righteous. So who are the righteous people that will be glorified? It will be those who rely on Christ for salvation from sin and confess him as Lord over their life. For it is to such that Christ communicates his righteousness. And so how does Solomon then conclude this discussion in verse 14 and 15? He says, there is a vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. There are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And he goes back to his refrain. So I commend joy. 
For man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For, the, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So while we're under the sun, while we're here together in this life, bad things are going to happen to good people. But that is vanity. And that's good news for us that that's vanity. Because if it's vanity, remember what vanity means in Ecclesiastes, it's a vapor, it doesn't last. It's not ultimate. Praise the Lord that good things happening to bad people and bad things happening to good people is vanity. It won't last. And because we know that, because we know that's vanity, that's why we can be joyful. Do you see? So look, the wicked prospering is a fleeting thing. But the righteous prospering is an ultimate thing that we can catch fleeting glimpses of for now as we seek to fear God. Let me say that again. The wicked prospering is a fleeting thing but the righteous prospering is an ultimate thing that we catch fleeting glimpses of for now. And so, because the crookedness is vanity, we can be joyful. We can have the wise perspective that we know frustrating things will happen under the sun, but God's work is not yet done. It is because life here is vanity that we can have joy. If this was all there was, we would be hopeless but it is not. So yes, bad things will happen here on earth that you don't necessarily deserve, or at least that others deserve more than you. But our hope is not here. It is above the Son, in the Son who sits at the right hand of the Father and what he did for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that life under the sun is not the end for your people. I pray, Lord, that if there are any here who do not fear you, who have not been given wisdom unto salvation, that you would strike them with the fear now, that being overly wicked or being overly righteous will not save them, but that they need to fear God. They need true wisdom from you. And Lord, for those of us who are your people, I pray that you would renew us, renew our wisdom, renew our resolve to be content and joyful here under the sun, knowing what we have to look forward to. A whole lot of good things, and maybe only a few now. And Lord, give us courage and comfort knowing that the wicked will be judged, that there is not a bad thing, that, happen, that not a good thing that happens to them that will go unpunished in eternity. And so, Lord, help us to long for the wisdom ideal. Help us to be content while we do not yet have it. And we pray all of this, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen.